As many of you know, Meredith and I were at Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area before moving back home to start Pomona Valley Church. It was a mixed bag of an experience, it's safe to say. At one point, to make a very long story short, I ended up on a discipleship team that was tasked with creating a plan for how people could grow at Willow. We needed to make a new plan because there was no such plan in existence and hadn't been for years, many years. Since this was Willow, this plan needed to be all things to all people, completely uncontroversial, highly branded and packaged. And so we worked on some ideas, got something pretty decent, if way too complex together. And our boss took this idea to the executive team, where it was met with, at least from our team's perspective, complete silence. Not criticism, not feedback, silence that stretched on for months. Looking back now, I realized that the executive team was far more occupied with trying to keep a lid on a soon-to-explode senior pastor situation than they were with, you know, leading a church. But at the time, we didn't know that. And our team just waited. Our boss would give us tasks to do to improve or modify this in-limbo plan, but it soon became apparent that there was no point. No plan was going to be adopted. We were just spinning our wheels. And that's how I found myself most days, being paid a pretty decent amount of money to sit with my feet up in front of the big windows on the third floor overlooking Willow's manicured grounds and pond, reading. It would have been a pretty good gig if I hadn't had that nagging in the back of my mind that I was supposed to be doing something, one of those tasks that our boss had wanted us to do, but that I knew for a fact were completely pointless, and so I was dragging it out as long as I could. One of my great weaknesses is that once I start getting a whiff that a task is pointless, a goal unattainable, my work ethic grinds to a halt. I can plug away at the tedious task that has to be done better than most, but pushing through that realization, oh, this doesn't matter at all, not so much. My motivation plummets and quickly if I don't have a good answer as to why something matters. This did not endear me to my boss in the discipleship department, I can assure you. Fortunately, he spent his days in his office with his door closed and rarely checked in on what the team was up to, but that's another story. And I tell you all this not to establish that I have a better answer to that tell-me-about-your-weaknesses interview question than I try too hard, I care too much, but because I think many of us humans have a similar reaction to a lost cause, and it sets up a fascinating contrast with the picture of God we find in Deuteronomy chapters 31 to 33. We're going to skip over chapters 28 to 30 for now and circle back to them uh, for Easter in a couple weeks. But this week, we're close to the end of the book. We've gone through chapter after chapter of God making a covenant with the people, of God warning them against wandering away after the gods of the nations of Canaan, of God giving rules and guidelines and principles for their life together as a community in this promised land, page after page after page of them. And we have been reminded of the story of Israel up till now, how they had been slaves in Egypt and cried out to God, and God had rescued them, brought them out through the Red Sea, provided for them in the wilderness, even as they had grumbled and complained and shown how little they trusted this God who had set them free. We've been reminded of the ingratitude of the people and how God pushed through, brought them after 40 years to the edge of this promised land made them ready to cross over to the other side, promised to be with them on the other side. God had invested so much in this people so that they might be God's people, representatives of the life and goodness and justice of Yahweh, 
a beacon of light for the nations around them. This was God's great plan to bring the whole earth back into harmony with God's character, to begin the work of making all things new. God had poured so much into this plan. And then we get this in chapter 31, starting in verse 16. And Yahweh said to Moses, look, you are about to lie with your fathers, die. And this people will rise and go whoring after the alien gods of the land into which they are coming. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have sealed with them. And my wrath will flare up against them on that day. And I shall forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will become fodder. And many evils and troubles will find them. And they will say on that day, is it not because our God is not in our midst that these evils have found us? And as for me, I will surely hide my face on that day for all the evil they have done, for they turned to other gods. And now write this song and teach it to the Israelites. Put it in their mouths so that this song will be a witness against the Israelites. When I bring them to the soil that I swore to their fathers, flowing with milk and honey, and they eat and are filled and grow sleek and turn to other gods and worship them and despise me and break my covenant, it shall be. When many evils and troubles find them, this song shall testify before them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten in the mouth of their descendants that I knew their inclinations that they do today before I brought them into the land, which I vowed. God knew all along, through all the years and wrong turns, through all the patience God showed at the grumblings and mistrust, through all the teaching and exhortations that the people would stay faithful to Yahweh, God knew. It was all futile. They would turn away. It would all come to nothing. And several hundred years later, God would be putting in the mouth of prophets like Jeremiah the very same accusations that come in the song that follows in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. The song that calls heaven and earth to be witnesses to all that God had done for Israel and all Israel had done or failed to do in response. Instead of reading the whole chapter, I'm going to read a couple of verses that make this point. Verse 10, God found Israel in the wilderness land, in the waste of the howling desert. God encircled them, gave mind to them, watched them like the apple of his eye, like an eagle who rouses her nest over her fledglings, she hovers. And even as God did that, God knew. Verse 18, the rock your bearer you neglected, you forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 21, they provoked me with an ungod. They vexed me with their empty things. God knew what was to come and did it all anyway. And I find that to be a remarkable thing. God, like a person entering a relationship they know is doomed from the start, loved Israel, cared for them, saved them, gave birth to them, looked over them like a mama eagle, like a loving father. How awesome is the character of our God? Some might object that these things aren't so much God looking forward, but since, as I've said before, as we've gone through this book of Deuteronomy, they were actually put together in the final form after the fact— these might just be people looking back over what had happened hundreds of years later and putting words in God's mouth. But here's what's really interesting. The song we get in chapter 32, according to scholars who studied this stuff, it's maybe the oldest part of this book. 
the poetry and structure and words in this song are so old that in some places we aren't even sure what the verses exactly mean. We can only guess. In other words, out of all the different pieces of Deuteronomy, this is one of the parts we can be most sure was written in the distant past, before things fell apart. The song in chapter 32 is a testament to what is true. God knew all along and loved them anyway. If you want to take a look at that, you can read a couple different translations of chapter 32. Uh, Verse 5 in particular is one that a lot of translators translate differently because they're more or less guessing on how all these different words fit together. But each of the translations will kind of have a note that's basically a shrug emoji next to that verse. Point being, again, this is so old that we can be confident that it really is God looking forward to a bleak future, knowing all along that the people will walk away, the people will break God's heart. And I find that remarkable. And what is even more remarkable is the song that follows in chapter 33. See, chapter 31 introduces that there's going to be a song about Israel's failure that comes in chapter 32. And then it is followed with another song in chapter 33. And both songs bear these same marks of being particularly ancient, but they have very different messages. What we have in chapters 31 to 33 is God looking ahead, seeing that all the work, all the patience is useless, that it will all fall apart. But because of who our God is, even that won't be the end. After the song of chapter 32 that tells of death comes a series of blessings in chapter 33 that tell of life. Each of the tribes of Israel is blessed in turn, and then the song ends like this, starting in 33 verse 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, riding through heavens as your help, and in his triumph through the skies. A refuge, the God of old, from beneath the arms everlasting. God drove from before you the enemy and said, Destroy. And Israel dwelled securely, untroubled Jacob's abode. In a land of grain and wine, its heavens too drop dew. Happy are you, Israel, who is like you, a people rescued by Yahweh, your shield of help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies cower before you, and you on their backs will tread. This is the story that repeats over and over in the Bible. A God who does all they can to be with humanity, knowing all along that humanity will break their heart, that we would choose paths that lead to death and violence and injustice instead of paths that lead to life, the life God wants for us and for the world. But then, When it seems like the end, when God's face seems hidden forever, the story somehow continues with God bringing life on the other side. This is not a storyline that begins with Easter, although we will celebrate that variation of it in a couple weeks too. It's a storyline as old as Deuteronomy 31 to 33, one of the oldest passages in the whole Bible in terms of when the lines themselves were actually put down in writing. The good news, in other words, doesn't start with Jesus's empty tomb. The good news is a story as old as God himself, because it is a fundamental aspect of the character of our God. It's good news for us as individuals who find ourselves sometimes wandering away from the life that God offers, distracted by the idols that promise us what they never do really give. God knew. 
God knew that we were prone to wander and loved us anyway. Jesus knew we would often stray, but gave himself up for us even so. And as often as we do wander off from the path of life, God stands watching and waiting like the father in the story of the prodigal son, longing for his child to come back home once more. It's good news, too, for the American church as a whole, maybe especially her evangelical wing, the one many of us once called home, but which has now largely wandered after the gods of political power and economic security, of nationalism and violence. If the story we see in Deuteronomy is any indication, God knew and has worked in and through that church even so. And now there may come a time, maybe it has come, maybe it will come soon, when God's face will largely be hidden from that church, as it was hidden from Israel in the exile, as it is hidden from the European church today in large part. But because of who our God is, the story will not end there. And life will some way, somehow spring up on the other side. A remnant, as the Bible puts it, of those ready to turn back and put their trust in God alone once more. will find that God knew all along and still loves us anyway. The final word today goes to my old professor, John Golden Gay, who, in reflecting on these chapters, put the broad themes and reality that they reflect about as perfectly as it could be put, I think. He wrote, How hard it is to get God to give up. How stubborn God is. Our God, Yahweh, is a stubborn God. And thank God for that. When we were together, we engaged in a practice called confession and absolution, where we tell God of our proneness to wander and then hear the reality that God is always there welcoming us back. Meredith is going to put that practice up on Instagram if you'd like to find it there. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.